If you have your Bible, open it, please, to the book of Judges, chapter number 6. And while you're finding that passage of Scripture, let me ask you a question. What do you think of when you hear the word obedience? What is the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, more than likely, when you think about that word obedience, you go back to your childhood when your parents or maybe your grandparents, your teacher, your coach, they were telling you to do something. This, this is what you have to do. This is what obedience is. And none of us like to be told what to do. So most of us, when we think about obedience, we have a negative connotation of that. We, we, think, of neg- we think of obedience in, in a negative light. Now, the second question is this. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, obeying God? You know, some people, I think, when they hear that phrase, obeying God, for them, that is a negative thought because, again, they were raised, they have to obey all the people telling them what to do, and now they go to church and the teacher or the preacher says, now you have to spend your life after you've been saved obeying God. And so I think many people think of obeying God as a negative thing. For example, they think, well, that means now I have to tithe, and how am I going to make it financially if I'm giving God 10% of the money that I have coming in. So that's a negative thought for many people. Somebody think, some people think, well, that means I've got to forgive people who have wronged me and who have hurt me and somehow have done something against me. So now if part of obeying God is I can't retaliate. I can't tell them off. I can't tell them how I really think. I just have to forgive them and let it go. And so people don't, that, that's, against our, that's against the grain. That's against human nature. And so I think sometimes people view that in a negative light. Sometimes even going to church, uh, I think people view that negatively. And they think, well, that's something I'm supposed to do. That's something I have to do. But today I would rather go uh, to the lake or I would rather sleep in or I would rather go to the ball game or to the movies or, or whatever, mow the yard. And so I think people think, man, going to church, that can even be, they view that negatively. Some people think, well, that means if I'm going to obey God, that means there are certain things that I can't do that other people seem to be able to do. And so they look at obedience as a negative thing because they think, well, why can't I do what other people are doing? I remember when I was growing up, this is not obeying God, this is obeying my mother. She had a rule for my brother and me that we could not watch the show Three's Company. Do you remember that show with John Ritter and Suzanne Summers and... Uh, DeWitt, Janet DeWitt, I think, I can't remember her first name, but she, but anyway, Janet uh, on the show, and so we couldn't watch it. You had these three people living together, and they weren't married, and so that was not allowed. Now, the truth is, today, that would be the cleanest show on television, Three's Company, but I can remember when I got to college, and I was in my dorm, had a little small TV, probably about 14 inches. It was very small, but I got it all plugged in, hooked up, and I was flipping. Didn't have remote control. You're just flipping the stations, and it came on Three's Company. I said, hallelujah, finally I can watch that show. <laughs> but uh, I probably felt a little guilty watching that anyway. But I'm saying we were told you can't do it, so that's negative, but now you, you're not there. You maybe can. But, so I think some people carry that over with God, and they think God has put all these restrictions on me. And I can't do the things that other people can do. Other people can watch, and now, for whatever reason, I can't do that. Other people, however, view obeying God in a more positive light. And they don't view it quite as negatively. And for them, they have figured out something we should all learn, and that is obeying God is the pathway of blessing. 
Do you remember the old song we used to sing? If you've been in church a long, long time, it never was one of my favorite songs. I thought it was drab. It was slow. It was called Living for Jesus on page 348 in the old Baptist hymnal. But at the end of the song in the chorus, there's a little phrase that has stood with, stayed with me for 30 or 40 or more years. And it's talking about, uh, you know, living for Jesus, obeying him. And at the end, it says, this is the pathway of blessing for me. And so there are some people who have figured out that obeying God is not really a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing because when we obey God, then... Uh, we put ourselves in a, possession, in a position to be blessed. Sometime I have thought in my life, uh, God, I feel, I was thinking this not too long ago. I was trying to make a decision about something. I didn't feel the freedom to do it. And I said, God, I feel like in my own life, in this area, you have backed me into a corner and I can't do anything. And no more quickly had I gotten that out of my mouth to God. I felt his spirit say to me, it's the corner of blessing. It's the corner of blessing. And so we have to remember in our lives when sometimes we feel restricted by God or by the Bible or by his commandments, or maybe it's not even a Bible issue, it's just his spirit is not giving us a green light to do something that maybe we would otherwise do or definitely we would otherwise do, that God, maybe we are in a corner, but it is the corner of blessing. So you have to think, what comes to your mind when you think about obeying God? Is it positive or negative? And then I would ask this third question. Then we're going to get into the study of Gideon tonight. Do you find it easy or difficult to obey God? Now, I've been thinking about that today in my own life. Uh, I mean, I have the same Bible you have. God told me to do the same thing he's told you to do. So, I mean, I think it'd be, uh, you know, the, 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 we're all having to play by the same rules. And the question is, do you find it easy or difficult to obey God? Well, I would say this, my own experience, I find it mostly easy. For the most part, I find obeying God to be easy, and I think that should be all of our testimony. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, the Bible says, His commandments are not burdensome. Say that with me. His commandments are not burdensome. In other words, John was saying, as he thought about his own relationship with Jesus and all the commandments that God has given us to obey, John said, for me, these are not burdensome. This is not something that's difficult for me to do. It's, it's, it's not burdensome. It's not, a, it's not bondage for me to try to obey God. I, in my notes today, I wrote this. I find it easy, personally, me. I find it easy to tithe. To my knowledge, I, there's never been a time in my life when I have gone to write a tithe that I found that hard to do or that I dreaded that or that I begrudged that or that I thought, oh, I really don't want to do this. Or I have never felt that way. I, find, I have always found it easy to tithe. I've always, I mean, I wouldn't say this is true every day, but for the whole of my life, I would say I find it easy to read my Bible. The only time I don't find it easy to read my Bible is if I'm physically tired and I can't think, and that would be a little more difficult. But other than that, I find it easy and enjoyable to read my Bible. I find it easy to pray. I don't dread praying unless I'm tired. Uh, I find that easy to do. I find it easy for me to go to church. Unless I'm not feeling well. I don't ever dread coming to church. I find it easy to share my faith. I don't find that something that's hard for me to do. I, so I would say with John, his commandments are not burdensome. One of the first things I can ever remember the Holy Spirit of God ever saying to me, I was in the seventh grade, and we had finished school for the day, and we were, I was walking from the school building down a hill to football practice. 
By my, on this particular day, I was by myself. I was normally with my friends, but this day I was by myself. And I was just walking down that hill, my mind, I'm sure, thinking about football or thinking about school or thinking about, I don't know what, I, I wasn't thinking about God. I just was think, you know, thinking about what you would think about in seventh grade. And out of the blue, the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, John, remember this, it's easier to do right than it is to do wrong. You have to go out of your way to do wrong, whereas to do right, you don't have to go out of your way. In the seventh grade, and that's still kind of young for kids to start going to parties and drink alcohol and and things like that, but by the time you get to the seventh grade, things are happening on the campus, and you you see people doing different things and going different places, and I just remember God saying, I, I I was thinking about parties that Sometimes people would go to where things would be happening at the parties that shouldn't be happening. And it was just like God said to me, everybody that went to that party had to go out of their way to go to that party. So it's really easier just not to go. It's easier to do right than it is to do wrong. Now, I never have forgotten that. I was in the seventh grade. In other words, if you're going to commit a sin, and we get older and the sins get bigger, but if you're going to commit certain sins, you have to go out of your way to commit the sin. I'll use a sin that wouldn't apply to anybody here, but just take robbing a bank. I mean, to me, it's easier not to rob a bank than to rob a bank. I mean, the people who rob a bank, they had to go out of their way. They had to plan how they're going to do it, what are we going to wear, have the mask, and then we have to go. And It's just easier to stay home or be easier to watch TV or to take a nap or to watch a movie or to get a job where you wouldn't have to rob a bank. It's just easier not to rob a bank. But that same principle would be true for every sin. I mean, it's easier not to commit adultery than it is to commit adultery. I mean, if you're going to do that, you've got to go out of your way to do that, right? It's easier not to go to a club or a bar and this weekend and do some crazy. It's just easier not to do that. In order to do those things, you've got to go out of your way to do it. And so I would have to say in my life, not that I always obey God or, or that I always have, because I haven't and I don't. I sometimes sin. But I'm just saying as I look at the whole of my life, I would have to say I find it mostly easy to obey God. I say with John, his commandments are not burdensome. Having said that, however, sometimes obeying God is difficult. Sometimes it's not easy to obey God. Now, I wrote some things down today that that I think would make obeying God difficult. This is not easy. For example, if God tells you to move, Moving is not an easy thing to do. If God tells you not to do something that you want to do, well, now you have to decide which way are you going to go. Are you going to do what you want to do? Are you going to do what God has told you to do? Well, if you want to do this and God tells you you can't do that, instead you have to do this, well, now that's not easy. That is, that is, that's when obeying God can become more difficult. If God tells you to wait, I don't find waiting to be an easy thing to do. I find waiting to be a difficult thing to do because we want everything right now. And so when God tells us to wait, there would be an example sometimes that obeying God is a difficult thing. If God tells you to sacrifice something of great value for him, well, that would be difficult. 
something that you value, something that you treasure, and you feel like God is telling you to make that sacrifice for him, that's a difficult thing to do. Or if God gives you an assignment in life, if God tells you to do something, that you, you just feel like, I can't do that. This completely overwhelms me. This intimidates me. This is hard. I think somebody else could do that better. And it can, or this, you might say, this makes me afraid. And so there are times, certainly in our lives, when we have to say that obeying God is not easy, that obeying God is difficult, and obeying God is hard. And that's what happened to Gideon in our scripture tonight in Judges chapter 6. God told Gideon to do something. And Dad's going to be talking Sunday about America at a crossroads, and we are. But here, Gideon is at a crossroads. Is he going to do what God told him to do? Or not. And so let's read this. Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. What was it that God told Gideon to do? Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And so what is God telling Gideon to do? He's telling him to tear down this altar to a pagan, false, Canaanite god. The the Canaanites had made up a god known as Baal, B-A-A-L, and they believed that Baal was the one who made fertility possible. And so if a couple is wanting to have a child, uh, they would pray to Baal to make that happen. Or if a farmer is wanting the the crops to grow, they would pray to Baal and that that there would be uh, growth in those crops. And God comes to Gideon and God said, Gideon, tear that altar down. Well, that would be a difficult thing to do. And verse 26 makes it even more difficult. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So now God has told Gideon, not only do I want you to tear down this altar to Baal, I want you to build an altar to me on the same spot where this altar to Baal currently is. Now that's what Gideon had been called to do. And I'm telling you, he was at a crossroads. Verse 27, so Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, it's easy for us to read that and say, well, Gideon, shame on you, you coward, doing it at night instead of doing it in the day. Well, he was afraid, and that's what it says here. He was afraid of what might happen to him if he did this. But let's give Gideon credit. At least he did what God told him to do. God told him to tear down one altar and build another one, and he did it. Now, yes, he did it at night. But we shouldn't be too hard on Gideon because the fact is he was obedient. The verse itself says that he did as the Lord had said to him. Now, what made this difficult was that there were several things working against Gideon in this particular assignment from God. First of all, it was difficult because of the cultural norms of that day. I mean, in this culture, most everybody worshiped Baal. And so he's having to swim upstream. He's having to go against the flow to tear down the altar to Baal, the cultural norms. Another thing that made it difficult, it took him out of his comfort zone. Gideon had grown up in this environment. And even though I don't believe Gideon worshipped Baal, uh, 
He was living in, a, in an environment where he was comfortable with this altar. This altar had been there for some time. His father had, uh, had built this altar, evidently. And then the peer pressure that he would have felt. Because when he tore this altar down, he's wondering, what are my peers going to do? What are the people in my father's household going to do? I mean, he was going against what his peer group was doing. And then another thing I think that made it difficult, uh, family loyalty. Look again in verse 25. It came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull. The, now watch this. Your father's young bull. And, uh, and then it says, Tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. This altar belonged to his father. And so those of us who are close with our families, we all feel this thing about family loyalty. And that's a good thing. And I'm all about loyalty. Uh, when I came on staff here 28 years ago, I, I mean, that was a big deal to me, loyalty. Of course, I was going to be loyal to my dad, but I wanted everybody else on the staff to be loyal too. I, I mean, I, I get that. I mean, George W. Bush said when he was helping his father run for president of the United States to follow President Reagan, that George W. Bush viewed himself as the loyalty enforcer. And if he sent somebody on the team that wasn't loyal... They didn't need to be on the team. So, I mean, loyalty is a great quality, and I'm all about that. But we have to say here that our ultimate loyalty cannot be to our earthly families. Our ultimate loyalty has to be to God. And when God told Gideon to tear down the altar at his father's house that more than likely his father had built, that was a test of whether or not Gideon would be more loyal to his earthly father than he was to his heavenly father, and he passed that test. You know, as I'm thinking about loyalty and family loyalty, you remember in the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he, started, he starts calling the disciples, Peter and Andrew, there they are by the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, and Jesus says to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And the Bible says, so they left their nets and followed Jesus. Well, you keep reading that passage, and Jesus went on down a little bit more on the shore there, and he saw two other brothers, James and John. And he said to them, follow me, follow me. And it says of James and John, they left their nets and their father to follow Jesus. They were in the family fishing business. Their father Zebedee was the owner of the business. And Jesus, when he called James and John, is saying, I'm not just challenging you and telling you guys to leave your business, your source of livelihood and income, part of what's involved in this call is that you have to leave your family. You have to leave your father. And so that's a big, that, that's a big thing that Gideon was feeling here. How do I tear down an altar that my father has built? Or at the very least, allowed to be built right there seemingly on his property. You know, sometimes we've, we've seen this, and maybe you have through the years. We have shared the gospel with somebody, and maybe they're from a different background, a religious background. They're not, not from a Christian home. And so maybe their father was Jewish. And nobody loves the Jewish people more than we do. But maybe their father was Jewish and, and, and you share the gospel. Or maybe their father was, their family was Muslim or some other religious background. And you share the gospel. And you can tell when you're sharing the gospel. The person you're talking to understand. They get it. They understand it. You sense that the Holy Spirit is speaking to their heart and leading them to make a decision. 
and you get to that point in the gospel presentation where you're calling on them right then and right there to make a decision for Christ. And they say something to the effect, well, if I do that, that would mean, now you're talking about illogical, It's, it's loyalty, but it's illogical loyalty. They will say, well, if I do that, that would mean when I die, I could not go and be with my family. Now, what are they saying? They're saying, if I do what you're encouraging me to do, when I die, I'm going to heaven. But my family wasn't saved, and so that, according to what you're telling me, they're not in heaven. And so if I get saved, if I become a Christian, when I die, I won't go to where they are. Now, that is family loyalty to the nth degree, but what is that person really saying? I mean, are are they really saying they would rather be in hell with their family than to be in heaven without their family? Well, I I don't think they thought it through that much. I think in their minds there's some other place. But what I'm saying is while family loyalty is a wonderful thing, You can't take it that far, and our loyalty, our ultimate loyalty, has to be to God. But Gideon's feeling this pressure in his life as a young man. And then the unknown consequences of his obedience. What would happen if he obeyed? Look again in verse 27. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. He, he, he thought, what are these people going to do to me? They may kill me. Verse 28, and when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. No, now he's built this altar to the Lord. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. And so Gideon knew this was a possibility. That's why he had done this at night, that if the people in that community knew that he was doing this or saw him doing this, they would want to kill him. This is disrespectful to the village, to the community to our parents, to our grandparents, to all of our family. This is total disloyalty to tear down this altar of Baal. And so this is what made it difficult for him because he was thinking this, if I obey God, what will be the consequences of my obedience? And what he had feared that they would try to kill him is exactly what happened. Now, Let's just build on that and go to the second thing I put in your outline, the second tremendous lesson we can learn about obedience, and that is this. When we obey God in the face of certain opposition and even persecution, someone will often defend us. I've noticed this in life. I've noticed this in other people's lives. Sometimes a a person is going through something. They're trying to obey God. They're trying to do what's right. And as a result of that, somebody else or maybe several somebody else criticizes that person. Maybe they don't understand what, you know, what's going on in this person's heart. And, they, and so they criticize them. But I have noticed that it just seems like out of the blue, if you don't try to defend yourself, somebody will defend you. That doesn't maybe always happen. But it seems like somebody will come 
to your defense. And that's why I would encourage you tonight, if you're being criticized at work or at home or in your circle of friends or somehow you're, you're trying to obey God and you're being criticized, I would encourage you, don't defend yourself. God will have somebody else out there to defend you. And that's what happens here in Gideon's case. Now, it's interesting who defended Gideon. It was his own father. You would think, in this case, his father would have led the charge to be mad at Gideon. But notice what you see, the love of a father, verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead with Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. And so this makes you wonder, Joash, even though this altar had been built either by him or with his consent or on his property or something, now he's saying to all these people in the, in the village there, let Baal defend himself. Let Baal, let Baal uh, if he's going to judge Gideon for what he's done, let him do it. So verse 32 says, Therefore on that day he called his son Zerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. And so the one person in this story that you might think to be the last person to defend Gideon defended him. And it says to me, when we obey God in the face of certain opposition and even persecutions, someone will often rise up and they'll defend us. I've learned this. In life, if you try to defend yourself, God will let you. But if you refuse to defend yourself, God will defend you. And many times the way God does it, he just raises somebody else up who will speak on your behalf. So that doesn't always happen, but it often happens. And that takes us to the third point tonight. When we obey God in the face of certain opposition and certain even persecution, God will always defend us and even empower us. Now, I want to give you a scripture to write down. Don't turn to it tonight, but it's one of my favorite psalms, and I want to read you a couple of verses. Psalm 59. In fact, I'll read the first two verses. Psalm 59. David is praying here, and he says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity, and save me from bloodthirsty men. Deliver me, defend me, deliver me, save me. So David's asking God to be his deliverer. Well, here we see in this story, not only did Joash, uh, Gideon's father Joash defend him, but we see that God defended him. Look in verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Now look at verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now don't miss that. Here's Gideon who has been obedient, who has done, he was at a crossroads in his life. And in the face of cultural norms, comfort zones, peer pressure, family loyalty, and unknown outcomes and unknown consequences of obedience, he took a step of faith and he obeyed God, not knowing what would happen. And God, you see, here's what happened. In this story, Gideon stood up for God. And now God is standing up for Gideon. And God is saying, Gideon, I'm going to honor you for honoring me. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet. Now he's not afraid. Now he's not trying to hide, not if he's blowing a trumpet. And the Abizrites gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh 
who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. And so now Gideon is stepping into his anointing. He's stepping into his calling. Why? Because God has come upon him. Again in verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now that's an interesting phrase. We read that, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Did you know that phrase literally means the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. The Lord clothed himself with Gideon. Just like when you got dressed today. When I got dressed today, I clothed myself with this shirt. I put this shirt on me. But this shirt uh, isn't me. I mean, the, 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 the power of this sermon tonight or the weakness of this sermon tonight has nothing to do with this shirt. It has to do with what's inside of this shirt, right? I mean, the shirt is on the outside of me. Now, when it says here that the Lord clothed himself with Gideon, what does that mean? It means that God wore Gideon like we would wear a shirt. God wore Gideon like a man would wear a suit. God put Gideon on so that from this point and the rest of the story about Gideon, all of the things that Gideon's going to do, all the victories Gideon's going to have, all the phenomenal things that ended him up in Hebrews chapter 11 in the honor roll of faith, all of that, it wasn't because of Gideon. It was because of the fact that God was in Gideon. And God was wearing Gideon like, like I'm wearing this shirt. God was wearing Gideon. It wasn't the man. It was God in the man. And it says to me, if we will obey God, even when it's not easy, verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, literally, the Lord clothed himself with Gideon, that we will be to God what this shirt is to me. See, this shirt, if I didn't have it on tonight, it would just be hanging in the closet, not doing anything. But now I've got this shirt on, and now look at it. This shirt's just moving all over the place. This shirt, just have an action tonight that it wouldn't have. If I left this shirt in the cleaners, it would have no movement. But I put this shirt on, and so now whatever I do, do, the shirt does. But it's not the shirt. It's the man in the shirt. And that's what it's saying here. It wasn't Gideon. It wasn't the man. It was God in the man. And from this point on in the story, God is wearing Gideon like we would wear a shirt, like a lady would wear a dress, like a man would wear a suit. God is wearing Gideon, and God is the one on the inside, and God is the one empowering this man, and God is the one. This is why I said a few weeks ago, in one of my sermons, if we're spirit-filled people, somebody should be able to come in our home, even if we're not there, and sense the presence of God in that house. Somebody should be able to look in your closet, even if you're not there, and just sense the presence of God in those clothes. Why? Because when you put those clothes on, there's a sense that God puts those clothes on. You're inside the clothes, but God's inside of you. And I said in the sermon, when people get in our cars, if they do, they should sense the presence of God. Because as we have inhabited the car to drive it, God has inhabited us. And so God, that, that, what Paul talked about, a fra- there should be a fragrance, the aroma of Christ, that the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. It was God in the man. Now, you still listen? Say amen. So tonight, we saw at the very beginning, when it came to Gideon obeying or not obeying, What God had told Gideon to do was to remove this altar of Baal, tear it down, and replace it with an altar to God. And he did that. And that led me to the first lesson. We've already had this, but I want to read it again. God wants us to remove 
everything from our lives that doesn't honor Him and to then replace those things with things that do honor Him. And so as I was thinking about that day, the, 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 today, the question is very obvious. What do you need to remove from your life? I mean, what is it in your life? I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily. But maybe I should ask the question this way. Is there anything in your life that you need to remove so that you could be obedient to God? We think about all the different things that could be. And I don't think I need to illustrate that. You kind of have an idea. Is there anything you need to remove from your life that doesn't honor God, and then to replace that with something that does honor God. You know, as I was thinking about that today, I thought, well, what could those things be? And instead of giving individual possible illustrations, I want to do it in a a broader sense. You know, I think there are three things in our lives that get us in trouble. In fact, I think every sin that any of us have ever committed would have to fall under one of these three categories. Our words, our actions, and our reactions. Everything you've ever done wrong has to be under one of those three categories. Every sin I've ever committed has to be something I said, something I did, or a response, and even on the action and the reaction, it could have just been in the mind, the thought. I mean, that's an action. It's not the same type as a physical, but it's still, your, your mind is acting. I did a wedding on a Saturday night in the chapel, and I said to the couple, I was going through that, I, I, and I said, I said to the husband, I said, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about the husband's responsibilities in marriage, and it has a lot to say about the wife's responsibilities. It's going to take both of you. You can't be married to yourself or by yourself, but if you're both doing it. And I said to the husband, I said, you know, if we took everything the Bible says about a husband and tried to reduce it down to the core teaching, I said, I think we would be in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul said, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And I said to that young groom, I said, from this night forward, your responsibility in every word, action, and reaction is to communicate to your wife that you love her the same way Jesus loves you. I said, now, nobody is going to do that as well as Jesus because Jesus is perfect. But that's still the, but I guess having just done that wedding and just saying those three words in every word, action, and reaction. Now, you think about it. Every sin in the world falls under one of those three categories. So what are we going to do? You know what else? I haven't thought about this till today. If you take those three words, word, action, and reaction, and form an acrostic out of it, you get the word war. And what are the wars we have in life, especially with each other? It's because of something we said, or something we did, or some way that we reacted to something they said or something they did. There's the war is on. Words, action, reaction. So here's, as I think tonight about all of our lives, and we want to remove the bad and replace it with the good, let's just start there. Words, actions, reactions. Now, let's take this one step farther. On our words, before we speak, we should be mindful. In other words, we should think 
Think before we speak. Count to ten before you speak. Just, just think before you speak. On our actions, we should be careful before we do something. You know, I gave the illustration at the beginning. Before, before, some of those robbing a bank or some of these things. But just think. You go from here tonight and say, what was the sermon about? John said that we're supposed to think before we rob the bank. <laughs> say, what kind of, y'all's church must be really in bad shape if that's the, that's the thing. Before you rob the bank. Think. But no, before you do an action, think. And then before a reaction, again, think and be mindful and be careful. And here's the thing on the reactions. You know, if we really believe, I think, you know, you can plan your actions. I can plan this sermon. I worked on it today. I knew what I was going to say before I came out here. It's planned. It's an action. There's nothing reactive about what I'm doing. If you come up to me after the sermon and say, that is without a doubt the worst sermon that I've ever heard in all my life, and I, I never want to hear you again. Well, now there's going to be a reaction, right? And I can't plan that. So how do we get in trouble with our reactions? I'll tell you how we get in trouble with our reactions. We react in the flesh instead of reacting in the spirit. Now, if you come up and say that to me afterwards, please don't. That would devastate me if you said that to me. But let's play like you did. If I react in the flesh, I might say something like this. Well, how dare you say something like that to me? I worked on this all day. I stood up there for a half hour. All I did was teach the Bible. How dare you? Well, let me ask you this. If I say that to you, have I made a friend out of you? No. I just drove the wedge deeper. But if I, instead of reacting in the flesh, react in the spirit, and I remind myself I'm being thoughtful, I'm being mindful, and I say, now, God, you're sovereign. You're in control. You allowed that person to say that to me so that you allowed it. So I trust you that you're in control. I trust you that you've allowed this conversation for some good purpose. So I'm, 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 I'm responding in my own spirit. In faith, God's in control. And then I say, okay, before I respond verbally to you, I say to myself, be kind. Paul tells us in the scripture, be kind. Proverbs 19, what makes a man attractive is not his physique or his finances or his wardrobe. What makes a man attractive is kindness. So I say, God, I want to be kind here. And so I say to you, well, you know, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you to pray that before I do another sermon, that I'll have it even better prepared than the one I had tonight. Now, when I say that to you, what does that do? It just, it just breaks down any defense. In other words, it's like, that was a soft response. That was a, that was a kind response. That was a, now, if you do that about three weeks in a row, I, I, as kindly as I'm going to say, I'm going to say, you know, there's a wonderful church down the road, and I think you would fit it there. But no, seriously, if we can respond just in, in, in kindness. I had a, I've had some painting done at my house this week, and Monday and Tuesday. And so early this morning, they came out to finish it, and there was this one spot that I thought wasn't right. And it was like, it's a thin wall, and it's like three-quarters up the wall, the color changes. It's, and, and, 
And I, I thought what they had done, they had put two coats on the bottom and in the top quarter they just put one coat. So the, they came back today for me to pay him and to finish. He said, anything else you need? I said, well, there's this one little wall. And he looked at it and he said, yeah, we, he said, we, put, we put two coats on that. I said, well, would you mind just putting another? Just do, roll it again. He rolled it again. He said, no, if that's what you want, we'll do it. He rolled it again. And I said, to, I said would you mind rolling it one more time because it was still there. He said, no. He said, no, I'm going to roll it two more times. Nice, nice, nice. He got finished. There wasn't anything different. He left. I paid him. He left. And 30 minutes later, I walked back in there, and it dawned on me that it wasn't the absence of paint. That's where the light was coming through from the front. I was asking that man to paint the light out, and he knew it, and yet he was so kind. And, you know, he could have said to, he could have said to me, hey, man, that's the light. i got to go to the next job. He said, you want me to paint that again? Absolutely. And I wasn't mad when I asked him. We're we're great friends. But I'm just saying, you know the old expression, kill them with kindness? Well, first of all, we shouldn't want to kill them, so we might need to clean that up. But I do think if we could learn to respond in kindness with our words, with our actions, and especially with our reactions, because you can't plan them. Just pause and think and remember God's in control. God allowed this conversation. God allowed that comment. God allowed this thing to ruffle you. So, God, I trust you. You're in control. And, God, I want to be kind. And just, what does it say in Proverbs 15? A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up conflict. And I think sometimes that's where we get in a war. Either we have a harsh word to begin with and here it comes back or maybe Somebody says something and we put the harsh word back, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And so, if we'll obey God like Gideon did, he's going to come upon us and he's going to wear us like a suit of clothes. And it won't be us responding and acting and reacting. It'll be God who's living in us. Amen? And so, Father, I thank you tonight for Gideon's example. This was not easy for him to obey like he did. But he did the right thing. And even one of the people who I would have thought would have reprimanded him for that ends up defending him. And then you certainly came to his defense and his empowerment. God, help us to remember that if we'll obey you, we can trust you with all the consequences of our obedience. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed, we're going to leave here in just a moment. Would you ask God to help you with your words, your actions, and your reactions? to honor the Lord that you would remove in those three categories anything that doesn't honor God and that you would replace it with something that does honor God God help us to be more like Gideon and help us Lord to allow you the indwelling Christ to live your life in us and through us in his name we pray and all the people said